Um, I'm Liz Manischel. I haven't brushed my hair today, but I'm here to tell you that you should come see Speed of Life on November 14th as part of Brave Maker's fabulous screening educational setup. Um, please join us. I would love to meet you. And I really want to hear what you think about our weird time travel love story. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Okay, let me turn on my camera. I only half convinced myself that it was totally okay <laughs> to just slap on a shirt and do this video podcast. Good morning. <laughs> so this is what it looks like and this is what's going to happen for the next hour. How are you? I am tired just like you. I was like, okay, do I? Okay, this is fine. I slept in the shirt. It's cool. Oh, and, I know, just so we're good. Yeah, we're good. That's the way to like pre, pre-warm your shirts when you wake up in the morning. It's just asleep in them. This is like, let's pour a second cup of coffee and let's do this. Let's talk yeah. speed of life. Ooh, yeah, and everything else in life and speed hey, your, and politics. Your microphone is nice and glowing and blue. Is that a fancy? Oh. What is that? Okay, so I, I think you I think we talked about this. Like I'm the co host of this podcast, Making Movies is yes, Hard. Yes. And my co host was like, Liz, I can't handle you just using your like, you know, iPhone earbuds. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you, Ulrich. I'm gonna buy the best mic I can so I got this mic and then these fancy earphones. Okay, so but I, I look I like the guy with mine. the low quality. No. But that's the thing is like that's what I would be doing, and we sound the same. Yeah. I'm the fool for spending 127 dollars on this <laughs> earphone and microphone bag. Like, when's my Patreon kickback gonna come to expense these <laughs> high priced gear? I don't get one. I haven't even negotiated that with with Alric. <laughs> now Alric. that I think about it. Okay, Alric, if you're listening, we got to work on a contract for Liz. So okay. <laughs> Well, hey, thanks for being on, and uh, I know having um, mom life and filmmaker life, and I don't know if you get Indigenous People Day off like I do, but... I do. That's why I'm talking to you. It's fantastic. Thank you. So thanks for squeezing in some time. Of course. No, this is the day I have all of the time. I am in love with it today. Right on. Awesome. Well, cool. Let's um, just dive in a little bit to talk about Speed of Life, because... What I want to do is give people a little bit of background, uh, talk about you know, the, a little bit of the making of the film, because I want to position November 14th as a filmmaker-centric experience. Like I'd love to draw filmmakers in to hear from you specifically as you're you know, making your second feature film, what that's been like, and then you have all this distribution experience. So I think it'd be really, really cool to have a sense of um, the making of the process, as well as like we always talk about themes of the film and how Speed of Life talks about you know, time and aging and Bowie and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm in. I don't know what to add right now, but yes, okay. I encourage all of those things. Okay, right on. Well, let's just start with how do you describe your, your feature, your second feature here, Speed of Life? I mean, uh, the ultimate goal when you describe your film is to sell tickets, right? So I just go to the lowest 
common denominator. And I'm like, well, um, a wormhole opens up. Uh, what do I say? I say David Bowie died and his death creates a wormhole in a couple's apartment. And that's all I say. Uh-huh. And then um, people are like, ah, that sounds like something I want to see. Um, and then I send them that, you know, Ticketmaster website or whatever. Uh, but ultimately the film is really just about um, a woman getting over a lost love mm. and lost used in a very loose sense because yeah. he's lost through space and time. But, you know, the story is that he's just lost from her life. Yeah. That's <clears throat> uh, I've described it to people as a portal opens up on the day David yeah. dies. And yeah. like, seriously, nine out of the 10 people I've shared have said, Oh yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> like when David Bowie died, something happened in the universe. That's kind of well, cool. I don't, um, I don't talk about this a lot because no one ever asked, but I remember in 2016, everyone was saying that they were like, what the hell happened? What did David Bowie's death create in the universe? Uh, and I had already, I think I had already written his death into the script when those kind of arguments, like there was like multiverse theories about David Bowie's death. Like there was like people really got into it and then it did feel like the world changed. And so in our film, we say the line, like it did really feel like the world changed when he died. And it's a nod to everything that's happened since, but we're not a political film. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that? Cause you wrote the film and directed the film so obviously it came from a personal place, you know, inspired. So David Bowie must have a significant place in, in your life. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm not like a super fan. Like if you made me sing, uh, you know, I, like if you made me sing a David Bowie song, I'd get half the words wrong, you know, but I, but I love him. And he's been a inspiration for me since I was, I mean, it's not really long, but since I was like 16 or, you know, early 20s. Um and for some reason, he just was one of those people that I didn't think was real. Like his persona transcended human form for me. I know that sounds crazy. And I'm, um, so when he died, I was just shook. I was just like, well, he's not supposed to die. Like that's, he's supposed to live forever. He's David Bowie. He's like a hero to all of us. Um, and you know, as, as it happened, I was writing a script at the time I was writing a horror film and cause I thought that would sell and I thought it'd make me lots of money. Uh-huh. And, um, I got writer's block when he died. Uh-huh. And so I, I was like, what, what would be like the most ridiculous thing to do to get me out of this writer's block? Okay. I'm just going to put exactly what I'm feeling into the script which is like just kind of this feeling of loss because David Bowie was gone. And then I'm just going to see what happens. And so I took the script I had and this idea of David Bowie's death and this wormhole, and I integrated two of them throughout the film and and turned out with this very weird movie, Speed of Life, that we have right now. (laughs) When... um... So when you were writing it, was it like a quick process because it sort of took you from the horror film to this? Was it a long talk about how the Mm -hmm. whole thing went down? I think the horror film probably took me about a, I I could be totally wrong, but I'm just going to give ideas of what I think this took. I think the horror film took about like a year to write. I was in a writer's group and was working on a few projects and I, um, I realized that I'm not a a genre writer because anytime I write anything, it turns into a romantic dramedy. Like I just can't get away from romantic dramedy. Um, 
and then when 2016 happened, January, uh, and David Bowie died, uh, the script changed and then we didn't shoot until April of 2018. So probably three years to write and put the film together. But to be fair, maybe two years because, um, we attached Anne Dow to be the lead and then she had to shoot second season of Handmaid's Tale. So we got pushed back eight months. So, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know Handmaid's Tale, you probably know a little bit of its dark dystopian <laughs> uh, feel on the Hulu series, but Anne has the lead role in Speed of Life and in Handmaid's Tale, she plays this really cruel, I mean, I would almost call her a human trafficker and slaver of women in some way. Yeah. Uh, so it was really kind of a fresh take on her personality, seeing her in your film. What was it like working with Thank her? You. She's really kind and she's really generous. And uh, when you do a Liz Manishel film, you slum a little bit, you know, <laughs> like you're not being put up in the Walter Fastoria. I always make the joke every time I meet an actor, I say there are no green M&Ms on site. We wouldn't know how to procure uh-huh. green M&Ms for you. Um, so I think, you know, I'm not saying it was, I'm trying to say this without affecting her brand, but I think it's like, she's used to Hulu. She's used to, um, you know, she's got a history of playing these character, really meaty, wonderful character roles on the side. Uh, And I think the attraction for her might've been that this was a lead role and um, was very different and very unusual. And we fit into her schedule somehow. But I always think of it as like, uh, she handled the fact that it's probably a step down mm-hmm. for her with like a lot of grace and dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, the script is good. The film is good. The team is wonderful, but we're not fancy. So she was pretty fabulous to work with. Did she tell you why she said yes? What about the script and story mm-hmm. you were in? No. <laughs> I'm like thinking, no, I've never asked her. I mean, to be honest, I'm just like trying not to ruin anything by asking sure. too many questions. Yeah. I'm more just like, like, oh, you said oh, yes. Okay, okay let's great. Move let's on. move on. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. I think, you know, I don't want to pass that by because I think it's really significant to, you know, for our listeners, because there's a lot of talk around when you make indie features, low budget films, like to get someone who has some name and credibility, sometimes it's really tough. But it's always recommended in some way because you can get more eyeballs on on your film. So kudos to you for navigating that. Can you speak to any of the, I don't know, I hate to call it tricks or tips, but how did you do that? How did you get the script into her representation? And It's all about relationships too, so anything you can speak to on that whole process. Yeah, I talk about this a little bit, um, and I'm happy to. my friend Andrew Peterson works at um, uh, a nonprofit, a film nonprofit in Minnesota, and he was like, he was a producer, and he read the script, and he's like, I'm happy to suggest cast to you. And Anne was at the top of his list, mm. and I went and I watched a bunch of work with her in it, and I was like, oh my god, just like if she has, she there's this one scene in this movie called Wildlife, Wildlife, I think it's not. Mm-hmm. Was it Wildlife? No. 
It's, it's like not the one that just came out. It's the one that came out a few years ago. Okay. So um, it's set in Alaska and she plays like a helicopter pilot. She has one scene. And this one scene was one of the best performances I've ever seen, like mm. point blank. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, Andrew knew her manager and her manager read this script or like one, someone on the management team or, and, and it might've been an agent to be honest. I, I kind of get those things mixed up. Um, and he was like, I think Anne would like this and it wow. went up the, the wow. totem pole. And you know, this, um, uh, is my second feature. So I mean, with my first feature, it was, it was a lot harder to convince mm-hmm. people to even like pay attention to my email. Uh, and then obviously it was a very long process because we pushed back for eight months. So there was like phone calls, emails between me and Anne. I sent her material, you know, um, and she was always in New York. So her representation suggested Jeff Perry, who is a hero and the most wonderful actor. And then I had previously worked with Alison Tolman's representation, both management and agents, um, as I think they both represent Bobby Moynihan, who was in my first feature. So it's this always yep. it's absolutely who you know, but it's also passing the test, jumping through the hoops that you need to jump through. Mm -hmm. And we were fully funded. So that's like number one question they'll ask. And I had a lot of work samples to send them because I had a feature, I had music videos, I had shorts, I had a long list of things to kind of explain to them that, and I also did cut a a ripomatic. Do you call it ripomatic? Okay. Yeah, or a sizzle reel or something, right? Yeah, yeah. we caught one too to explain because our film is so weird Uh with time travel and David Bowie. So anything that we – we just tried to constantly provide things to make it easier for the team to pitch their their clients. So you had to push back eight months. So that's a big deal, which is kind of normal in the industry too. People, you know, push back things all the time. But when you're at our level – our level uh, where it's like you don't have <laughs> yeah. all the money and the freedom and the time you're like that's a big how did you navigate through that I mean to be honest I was just like this is the way to secure her whatever like absolutely we'll do whatever we can I think it's always touch and go and I felt like me making the commitment of pushing the project back eight months was me saying to them we want her we're putting her first and I think that meant a lot to her team um also, yeah, I mean, I also, I always think that I establish dates. You know how you like, you pick your dates when you're going to shoot. I always set them way too early than you're supposed to, because that's my, that's my trick to get momentum on a project is if you set the dates far enough advanced that you have enough time to get the train going. And I, unfortunately I do push date back dates back normally, um, so I think the project benefited from the extra eight months is what I'm saying. Like my production designer really needed to like gather items from 2016 and design what the year 2040 was going to look like. And we all, we all like grew from those eight months. So yeah, and they went fast actually. That's very cool to uh, get that time <laughs> funny ironically that's this you know theme of your film too time but that that yeah. benefited you guys by the way is allison tolma is she in a new series called emergence allison tolman yeah she Tolman's. was um Tolman. 
she's one of my favorite actresses of all time and I'm just obsessed with her, but yeah, she's the lead of emergence. She was Emmy nominee for Fargo season one. If y'all remember Fargo season one, which is one of the best seasons of television really. Um, and she's been in a bunch of films, but I just, I just had to take a second because I love her so much. That is so So cool. Working with good talent and people that you admire, like that just only sharpens you as a director. So that's, that's really cool to hear that. Well, I don't think it sharpened me at all. I honestly thought, I just felt like she came in, she didn't need anything. And I just Mm -hmm. felt inept because I had no adjustments for her and nothing to say. And all I did was just sit and watch her be wonderful. And I just, it almost, it just humbled me. I'm just like, what am I, I have nothing to say to you. Thank you so much for your time. Goodbye. Like, But well, she's what, a hero. Say say more about that than the the directing process. If you're working with and Dow too, I'm sure you're getting great performances. But what is something that you learned? How how were you as a director shaped? Now it was it three a three week shoot? Oh no, it was a twelve day shoot. 12, okay, twelve day shoot. How were you yeah. changed in those twelve days? That's amazing. I hate being on set. Well, it's one location. It was one location and we only had money for 12 days. Um, So we made it work. Uh, I mean, I think people were exhausted by the end of it. Um, I hate being on set. I really don't like it. I am one of those directors that just really loves post and really like to be at home with my dog and my kid. Um, So in terms of learning, uh, I think most importantly, I learned like there was a lot of personalities on set. I mean, actors are actors. They all have very vibrant personalities. And I learned that directing was actually just making people feel better. And that's what it felt like. It was like, we had already done the shot list. We had already storyboarded. Ultimately, I just wanted to make sure people felt comfortable. And that's what my role became on set, especially in a world where you're establishing such a strange tone. I think it's hard for everyone to see what you're making. Um, if you're, you know, poor Ray Santiago, who's like one, one tremendous talent had to play a character who went from, went from 2016 to 2040 and wasn't really changed. Mm. So like the arc for him to play is not, a, there's no arc there. And I think that what became like, a massive learning curve for the two of us. Cause he'd be like, what's my motivation there? And I'm like, I'd be like, you fell into a wormhole. That's your motivation. <laughs> and he's like, no, there needs to be a reason why I fell, what I experienced, how it changed me. And, um, those kind of questions impacted me a lot as a director. Hmm. So the questions, the questions from the actors pressing you to think a little bit deeper. It sounds like about this. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Absolutely. And also just, um, yeah, calling me, calling me on things. Cause mm-hmm. as the writer, I'll write things because I find them to be whimsical or because there's something instinctually saying, just do it. Like follow those instincts. Like I love David Lynch and a lot of late David Lynch does as he puts things, um, because he's inspired to put them in his script. There may not always be a logical reason. And I, I think I took that a little too seriously and was like, just follow your instincts, write what you want to write. It's all in your head. And then I don't, and I think it's uh, really important to be accountable for every single decision. And, and that's what I learned. Uh, be to play. Yeah, that's cool. 
So I'd love to hear more about like um, now that you finished your second feature for a lot of our listeners, they're you know making short films and that's the dream, right? Same for me. I've only made a bunch of shorts and I've got a couple features written and I'm in different phases of fundraising and looking for investors. So two, I'd love to hear you speak on two things. We'll start with the set since we're already in that set thing, but just uh, you don't like set. So how, how do you make it through? What are some of your things? Like Ava DuVernay says, you know, change your socks and shoes at lunch, which I do anytime oh. I'm on a set. I love that. Anytime I'm on a set, I yeah. make a change of socks and shoes and it feels like, okay, a fresh start, you know, at two o'clock and then you're ready for the rest of the day. Do you have anything like that that you oh. get through? Um, I listen to Van Halen every day before coming to set. I never really liked Van Halen until, for some reason, I really got into them while we were shooting Speed of Life. And um, my partner and I would drive to set every day. My partner, Sean Wright, and he's in the movie. He uh, plays Philip. And um, we would drive to set. I'd be like, Sean, you got to play. I mean, I was obsessed with... um, God, what is that song that it's like everyone hates because they ever play it? Jump. Um, jump. Oh, yeah, jump. I'd be jump, like, jump. jump, you got to play jump. <laughs> um, so we have to listen to Van Halen every single day. And then I think there's certain things like every time I make a film, there's one thing I wear every single day. It's like a pin or an earring or there's something that uh-huh. is consistent throughout the entire shoot. So I'm a little superstitious in that vein. Um, but gosh, what, what do I, how do I get through it? No, I just grin and bear it because I hate it so much. And, um, I think I just look forward to saying I made the movie and I just spend the whole time on set being like two more days till I could say it's in the can. And, um, which is crazy because I think a lot of people find so much joy. I'm sure you find a lot of joy in being on set. Why do you like it? Explain, convince me. Yeah. I like the collaboration part a lot. I like like what you said about the actors asking questions. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I live for that. I think I like the, (laughs) I like the moment because you know, you can prepare and prepare and prepare as much as you want, but then all those things go to, you know, to hell when things fall apart and you got to figure out how to navigate it's like, like that gives me energy with the, I love problem solving and I like, you to- are a born filmmaker, my friends. <laughs> that is what I'm hearing oh from, from this conversation. <laughs> I just wish I could do more films. What's taking so long to make it happen. But yeah, I do. I just like that. Cause it, it, I do get a little bit of a higher sense of accomplishment going like, all right, that was really, really hard. And we figured it out. And I also like to set the, for, for myself, like the goal, like, cause we know we've seen people on set lose their minds in really negative ways. And I'm trying to go like, I want to just, I want to find myself winning in the area of treating people like with kindness and compassion, even when things are like the stakes are really high and things are yes. really hard. Like that feels really good to me. So I just, that, that part, you know, feels good. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, I have a, a no asshole policy. Uh-huh. I talk about yes, it very freely yes, yes. and I like, I'm also a control freak. So I like to meet every single person who's going to be on my side if I can. And if I don't get to, I say to the department head, are they an asshole? Uh-huh. Like, tell me, like, are they? An-? And I know that's crazy because the term asshole could mean anything, but is it like, <laughs> are they, <laughs> I mean, you know, it could be, it could be like, Oh, they're kind of rude. What you know, like asshole is a very subjective term that to me. That is so funny. 
It's, it's but, nuanced. <laughs> but unfortunately, in Los Angeles, it feels like it is because it feels like everyone's got an asshole. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's important to feel like I'm surrounded by positivity. I'm totally with you and problem solvers. I've actually never been on a set where someone lost their shit. Um, I think someone got a little tense and cranky on bread and butter and they were fired mm-hmm. because they didn't express themselves well. And the whole thing is like, everyone is not being paid well. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, we're, we're not winning the lottery here. We're all kind of taking, um, a sacrifice for sacrificing for this film. And, um, no one wants to do that. Well, the, the water's poisoned, yeah. I guess, essentially. Yeah. So I totally get it. Um, so yeah. And also just for my own anxiety, like if I have people who are cranky, like I'm just going to be more anxious and a lot less fun on sure. set. Sure. 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 So the other part is, uh, I guess there's two more parts cause you said you love post. So we'll save post for last, but the, the what about pre-production and, or even before that, just finding your investors, talk a little bit about that process and what that's like for you and how you've navigated two features. Yeah, well, it's like um, I'm like shrugging my shoulders a little bit because I just pre-production and production are just the most fragile times because I just keep thinking like the drive's going to drop or the camera's going to break or the money's going to fall through. Like there's right. There's so many variables. So I hate it because, again, I'm a control freak. I need it to be in the can. I need it to be backed up three times, Uh you know, or three different ways. Um, for me, development and pre-production are really loose, long-term ideas. They are years. They're not like strict six months or, you know, six weeks or whatever it is that people normally do. Um, and I don't enjoy it also because (laughs) I don't like shot listing. I don't like storyboarding. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very visual director. I'm a lot more about for someone who can't, who's not often holding herself accountable for words, words are very important to me. So for me, it's like, I just want the specific scenarios and dialogue in the script to come to life. Uh, And pre-production doesn't have a lot to do with that. So it's me just like checking off the boxes in order to get to post-production. I sound like a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) I love casting though. I think casting is the most magical part filmmaking because I always cast with a mix of established actors, maybe some emerging, maybe some who are about to break out. Um, And I always push for diversity, not just like racial diversity or cultural diversity, but body type, but gender, you know, just everything, every kind of representation that I could have on screen, because I think, I am inspired when I see like curvy women on screen. So I feel like that kind of representation matters in terms of, um, racial, cultural gender as well. So that whole process is so fun. And also like vying for an actor that you see is perfect for the role and then nailing them and getting them like, that's the best. So I, that's, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I want to comment on that. I think that I haven't really heard that before because with Brave Maker, we're trying to be intentional with our selections and finding film, you know, women filmmakers, filmmakers of color, filmmakers in the LGBTQ community and learning from them. And I think on the casting process, we are like, yeah, we want to be seeing films that have people of color in the LGBTQ community. But I love that you emphasize body type. Like I have never 
thought about that before. I know I've read articles and heard people talk about it. There's a lot of, obviously, in Hollywood, either body shaming or stereotyping or, like, you know, the antagonist has to be, quote-unquote, likable and beautiful and all those kind of things. But I have heard other people talk about, no, we want interesting characters. We want people who are human and real and accessible. Mm -hmm. And that could mean they're a different body type or they're a jerk or they have, they're not whatever. So that's a really cool point. I'm I'm going to take that to heart. I like that. Thank you for that. That's good. No worries. (laughs) I mean, that's a career long decision that I've made. I mean, with my first feature, I was talking to like wonderful TV actresses for the lead. And, um, ultimately I went with someone who is a wonderful actress and has been a bunch of things, but it's not a quote unquote name. And she would say the same thing. And she's the best. Her name is Christine Weatherup. And I did an open casting call saying, and I'm looking for someone who isn't a cookie cutter, who isn't, and I said, who isn't a stick physically, who is a little bit curvier, who, um, and she responded um, to that call saying like she's had agents and managers say that she doesn't fit into a type. And, um, and I think she even was willing to gain a little weight for the role too. And it's important for me to have um, seen body though. Chrissy is, like I would say, she's like an Amazonian beauty. Um, but she was closer to my body type than the other actresses that I looked for. And the same thing can be said for Alison Tolman and Ann Dowd. Gorgeous women, nuanced, beautiful, talented actresses who are not stick figures. Yeah. Um, that's just super important to me. And also just good for other women to see different body types on screen so they don't feel like there's only one type, yeah. right? Oh, that's cool. Side note, have you ever directed a play? It seems like you would love the theater. You know, right? Because I it's I I don't have to there's a lot of things I would love. Um I came from theater. Okay. Uh I acted and uh I never wrote any plays, but I acted in um in well, in theater productions from like age 5 until age like 21 or something like that and uh ultimately I got like massive stage fright okay. and I just had to walk away. Uh-huh. But, uh, I would love, I'd love to direct plays, but I don't, as far as I know, no one would pay me to do that. <laughs> and, yeah, um, a lot of money there. Right. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not a lot of money in what we're doing yet either all the time. But. Right. <laughs> but the visibility in LA is like, no one goes to the theater That's in true. LA That's and, true. um, the time commitment versus the revenue yeah. versus like the yeah. type of attention I'd get. Yeah. Uh, is unfortunately a little bit uneven right now, but yeah. oh my gosh, you're just getting me excited to direct a play. Cause no, come on, seriously, I just that'd be so fun. How, like, you know, I'm not a storyboard person either. I like to figure it out on the set, but I know we have to do that on shot listing. Like not my favorite either, but just as you were describing, I'm thinking, Oh, like, I know like when I've been in the plays and same, I was on stage for a long time, but I love creating the, the story with live actors on the stage and figuring out, it seems like that'd be something you would, you would dig to. Oh, no, it sounds great. I love going to musicals and I love watching plays. There's something so magical. I think yeah. most films are just trying to hit, like, you know, when you're in a play and something just clicks into gear and it's like, you don't have to think anymore mm-hmm. and you're just, you yeah. are the character. Yeah. You're like, you know that so well. Yeah. Um, that's what I think films are trying to get to. It's like funny. It's like, you have to like set up a scenario where you're like, trying to make it look like a wonderful live performance. Um, I never thought about that. That's cool. Have you heard of the um, Little Shop of Horrors one that's going on in Pasadena right now? I I talked to the guy who designed the 
puppets, I think, um, from Rogue Artists Ensemble, I think is, uh, yeah, but I haven't seen it. Is it fantastic? I haven't seen it, but a couple of my friends have seen it and posting it, but it's just all diverse, trans, LGBT, you know, gender swapping kind of roles, I guess. It sounds really, really cool. Sounds like something you would dig as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about money. (laughs) And uh, everyone's favorite topic. (laughs) So that's part of the, you know, to make a film, you got to get some money. And you, you also have a lot of experience in creative distribution. You used to work with Sundance and now you're doing a distribution, a a new job in distribution right now or sales, right? Something like that. It's impact distribution. It's an agency. So we're being paid to help filmmakers. Yeah, that's fantastic. So talk, I mean, I know filmmakers sometimes are tight-lipped about finances, but share what you can about your own film or just in general, like, hey, that's the biggest hurdle sometimes. Like you said, an actor or an actor's reps, the first thing they're going to say is, are you funded? So how did you get funded? What are your thoughts around funding and making movies? I'm a massive fan of crowdfunding. Uh, And I mean, I will say this till, till it's completely eradicated, but I think it is the way... Uh, and the whole basis of this, and I feel like you would understand this is like when you're a filmmaker and you want to make your feature and it's what you think about all the time. And it's like the thing keeping you like alive really, cause it's pushing you, um, the feeling of having made that feature is so rewarding that I'm in favor of any sort of apparatus, platform, whatever it is to help filmmakers feel emotionally fulfilled to get their projects off the ground. So for me, like everything is about emotional catharsis. Um, this I swear has to do with financing. Um, crowdfunding is the way to have with no, with very little barriers to go to your network and get projects funded. And I believe that it's our like duty as a community to support each other and to help each other find that emotional catharsis. So, um, both my features were crowdfunded in terms of the seed funding. Um, it was about one third to one half of bread and butters budget. It was, 20%, maybe, maybe 20 to 30% of speed of life's budget. And then from crowdfunding for bread and butter, I managed to actually attract investors, uh, because there's momentum around your project when you're crowdfunding. And then that one investor found another investor. This all took years, by the way, making it seem like it's super easy. And then credit cards, which I do not advise and say specifically, you should not be doing that. Um, and then my own personal, you know, savings. And then the speed of life was, um, funded in part with revenue from the first film. In addition to, again, credit cards, my money, the crowdfunding, um, and two additional investors. Like I've never had an investor or patron, all the way through, um, from each of my projects, go to the next project. So, um, what I'm just trying to say is like, I think crowdfunding allows you to have like a marketing campaign to attract potential teammates to come on board. It's also a massive marketing event of itself. It reminds people that you're making a movie, you're producing content. I just like, I'm such a fan. I really, so anyway, uh, crowdfunding and then just being super loud with everyone possible about the fact that you're making a movie and then asking specifically saying, I need money. Would you invest? Yeah. It's crazy, but just asking for just what you asking, want. Yeah. 
And so for with bread and butter and speed of life, so obviously bread and butter, um, you said you had revenue, so you, you made all your money back from... No, um, it wasn't profit. It was just revenue. So okay. um, I was the you know, I was 75% of the budget of bread and butter between the crowdfunding, my credit cards, my savings. Um, we found a savings bond from my childhood, like locked in a safety deposit box, like everything went into this bill. Like, Thanks grandma. Uh, I know I really was. It was really amazing. Uh, so, uh, because I was 75% was 75% owner or whatever of the film, uh, when money came in, I got 75% of it. So that contributed, I just moved all that money that was revenue to the next project instead of putting it into my bank account. I see. Okay. And did you pay off all the investors? Did the investors all make no. money back? Okay. We're How still does, not, we're still not paid off. We're still not paid off. How does that, because I think that's a big fear, right? For a lot of filmmakers is that fear of like... <laughs> because people want their money back, how would you encourage filmmakers to walk into that space? No one's paying back their investors right now. I think that's is something that needs to be said way more often. And I, no one knows because no one's talking about it. Yeah. And just because I've had so many conversations with filmmakers, like this is my world is the world of the micro budget filmmaker who's like struggling to get by. Um, I know very few films that have profited micro budget or non micro budget. And I think and Liz, what every micro budget is yeah. two fifty or under. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Oh, Oh my gosh. Was my mic off this whole time? No. Can you hear me a lot better now? I can, oh. hear, you. I can hear you the whole time. Wait, wait, oh, hold on. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, then this button means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks cool because it's blue yeah. and glowing. It's like a list button. Um, yeah, I say 250K and below. Okay. Uh, because I think that once you're working with SAG-AFTRA and those SAG uh, budget levels, uh, they're the reason for a major inflation in your budget after you get beyond 250K. And I completely understand how you could go from a 250K budget to like a 750K budget. Like things just balloon after that point. Um I think every filmmaker needs to decide for herself when you talk to an investor, are you going to overpromise? Are you going to say what has worked in the past, which is say, which is things like we're going to keep overhead so low that of course we're going to recoup. Like there are phrases that people say to investors to kind of get them on board. Or are you going to be like a really thoughtful filmmaker and say, we may not, we may not recoup. We may not, uh, profit. Think of this as you may lose your investment, but so only invest the amount of money that you feel comfortable in investing. But I promise I'll be transparent with you. I'll bring you a part, you know, I'll bring you into every conversation you want to be a part of. I'll let you see how films are made. So you can decide if you really want to stay in the world of film investing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'll make every possible effort to market this film so that we will make a profit and make distribution partners, uh, partnerships that will be valuable for our film. So I think if you are honest, but the problem is that filmmakers are not having sustainable careers right now. So these investments are really, they're philanthropy in a, in a super awkward way. They're philanthropic contributions to artists getting project up the ground. 
unless it's a niche documentary about extreme sports or diet, or it's a horror film or it's a, you know, a thriller with army veterans, you know, like there are certain things that do quite well. Um, but yeah, I think those conversations are awkward and you can over promise to an investor and that might work. But I, I've always just said to an investor, I don't know, I'll do the, but you know, I'll work in the budget that's lowest. So we have the best chance of making any money, but I can't guarantee we'd make any money. But ultimately I will talk about distribution with you or my books will be open or I'll be super communicative. And that's what I offer in exchange. Um, which I think is actually pretty maverick because most filmmakers don't want to involve investors in creative decisions because they're afraid of that barrier being broached as well. Right. Or the strings that come attached to that too. Right. Like, so if I talk to you, then you're going to have to impose your whatever influences on me. Uh, so I'm wondering how, um, how have you navigated paying yourself? Cause one thing I feel like as a filmmaker, it's often like I'll raise all the money to pay everybody else. And then I'm going like, I'm working for free. And so I'm trying to like, the next project's going, I can't do that anymore. And I assume as a feature filmmaker, you're going, no, nope, I'm putting myself in the budget as writer-director because that's no. valuing you. You're not either? No, no, no. I'm so sorry. I really support you doing that. <laughs> I do. Do what Johnny don't does. Don't. What is that? There's like a Simpsons quote where it's like Bart's reading a book. Anyway, um, yeah, don't do what I do. I never put myself in the budget. In fact, I got hired to direct a third feature and I also said, don't give me a fee. Uh, because I don't, I'm an idiot. Um, my perspective is that it's hard enough to raise money for a film. Uh, treat me in other ways. Give me final cut. Give me, you know, ultimate approval of all casting decisions. Let me be, let me have the joy of directing and let me have, you know, get what I want from this project. Um, but yeah, it's kicked me in the butt and I have to look at film as a hobby rather than as a job because okay. of things, those decisions that I make, but I have a day job yeah. and that's why I have a day job is because I, I'm not making any money or I'm not sectioning budget off for myself. I'm an idiot. Don't listen to me. <laughs> Well, that should be like the podcast title. Like, <laughs> don't listen to Liz. Don't listen to it. <laughs> well, I think there's you know so many different paths, right? And so you have a luxury of having a job that is still in film, though. So, which I assume is very fulfilling. Like, I in in some way I can reckon or identify because with Brave Maker, I'm getting to help filmmakers and do these film screenings, and you know I get to watch yeah. a lot of films and curate the films, and that definitely feels fulfilling. You know, it's not my full day job. It's a part-time job. That What's I do. your day job? Are you allowed to say? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I do three different jobs. I, I'd say like I have, I have brave maker. I work with a church uh, cool. two, two days a week. And then I do my freelance, like I'm doing corporate stuff as well. So I'm writing and directing and producing stuff in the Bay area, much like Ulrich does. So yeah. with those three elements, we have to scrape together a living, you know, but it's not yeah. ideal. Right. I don't like, like, it's exhausting at times. <clears throat> Very exhausting. It's yeah. I, yeah. It's, um, I never, I, I don't want to be a full-time director. Uh, that's not my goal. You don't my goal to is be. to make, no, my goal is to make sure I'm like fixing my, I'm moving my legs around a lot. Um, my goal is to, um, 
I always say is like to develop a canon of films that I can be really proud of. But I, I see that canon as like five or six movies in my entire lifetime. Oh, wow. And, and I want them to be ones that I write and ones that come and are inspired by my life. And I want it to kind of reflect things that I've gone through. And that's, I want to die having that canon be what I leave. Um, so why don't, I don't like being on set. I don't like pre-production. Why should I do that as a day job? Um, but absolutely for the filmmakers who are working so hard, who are driving so much joy from every aspect of the process, who are, you know, really are committed to making this their everything. Like I want you to pay yourself. Mm-hmm. I just like, I don't see it as a commercial venture for myself. Yeah. That's cool. That, that's valid. And you're, you're a third of the way done then. So you're good. <laughs> <laughs> but then like, that means like my life is yeah, exactly. more than a third <laughs> like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. But that child's going to take a lot more years of your life than, than you ever <laughs> <That's> could know. <laughs> I mean, it's already happening. Parenting I totally get that. It's amazing, but it's also a, you know, it's your, it's a job too. You gotta, you're dedicating so much time. Your life is so different now, I'm sure. I just remember being like, maybe like a few years ago, I'd have friends or family member with kids and I'd be like, why didn't they text me back? Or like, why are they always late? And I just like, oh, yeah, I totally get it now. Right. That wasn't rudeness. That was them just trying to get by. That's right. Yeah. What day is it? What year is it? This is, this, right. this little <laughs> being is a fog. It's everything. It's absorbed me <laughs> in my life. <laughs> That's totally. So cool. totally. Well, hey, um, what would you want to say? Anything else? We're gonna we'll talk more on November fourteenth, twenty nineteen, in Redwood City, California, at the Century Twenty Theater when we screen Speed of Life with Liz. Um, but anything else you want to say to inspire, you know, a filmmaker who is trying to pull, um, you know, pull the plug in a good way or launch. What am I trying to say? Pull the trigger. On there. Not pull yes. the plug. Maybe, maybe you're going to pull the plug. I don't know, but pull the trigger on their first project and they have, uh, you know, fears or questions. What would you want to say to them? Yeah. I'm a little bit of a broken record. So if my dad who listens to things that I say, he'll have heard me say this like 45 times, but, um, the person I was before I made bread and butter is a different person than the person who can say they've made their first feature. And I've wanted my whole life to be a feature filmmaker since I was 16. I wanted to be a feature filmmaker. Um, that's not my whole life, but it feels like it. And, uh, I think that all of us as artists, the ones that want to make the feature or want to make the big project or the big VR or the big short, whatever it is, um, to follow that instinct I think every now and then we'll have moments in the dark where we'll be like, this is silly. This is arbitrary. Why do I care so much? And I just want to reinforce the fact that like, once you get it done, you're going to feel better. So like scratch Mm. that itch, get it done, um, and move on to the next project. Mm. And that's why I work in micro budget is so that I could complete projects a little bit faster than having to wait, you know, for the gatekeepers to bestow their like, golden goose or whatever upon me. I don't know what analogy I can use. I'm horrible with analogies. Um, but, but just to say like from the other side of someone who's just made these two tiny films, like, um, to, that you feel a whole lot better once you've made them. That's all. Feel better. I want to feel better. I love that. <laughs> feel better. I know, but I like. I still have like four more in my mind that I feel horrible about. So, like, I'm, project by project, I'm hoping to feel a little bit better. 
So on November 14th, we'll talk a little bit more. We'll do some Q&R, we call it, question and response, because I believe none of us really has the answers. We're just trying to figure it out. So filmmakers, come, 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 come talk to Liz and learn about her process. And then we're also trying to figure out a way we can do something together for the film festival May 15th through 17th. So Liz is the co-host of another podcast called Making Movies is Hard. And she also does this creative distribution stuff and helps filmmakers. So I think there's some good synergy to take what she's doing in LA, what we're doing in the Bay and try to intersect. So we'll, we'll be talking more about that, Liz, in, in the future. Yeah. yeah. So thanks. Where can people find you? Oh, um, Twitter, uh, at Liz Manischel, or just email me. Um, I accept all Facebook friendships and, um, we'll follow you back on Twitter, but just Liz Manischel, gmail.com. Nice. Yeah. Cool. I'll see you. (laughs) Thank you for this. Oh, for sure. Fabulous. For sure. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for who you are. By the way, every time I listen to the podcast, I'm like, Liz has a great podcast voice. You have a great podcast like presence and personality, a really, really good voice for, for audio stuff. So way to go. I, um, we'll have a conversation on the 14th, but like this podcasting world has got me like my head turned upside down. I'm very like confounded by the whole experience. Really? Just like, do you ever just like things come out of your mouth and you're like, that's their fraternity. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. I also feel like I, I don't like hearing my voice. I know most people don't. Um, and, and then like I'm very wordy and talking and stuff like this, which you can't see <laughs> on podcasts. But right. when you do stuff like this and you use clips, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> and then sometimes like the lighting in my nose is like right here. Yeah, so it's very self-conscious. It's so self-conscious. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I feel better. Thank okay, you. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks. Have a good Monday. Enjoy hey, Indigenous Peoples too. Day. I'll, t- I'll see you in November. Okay, bye. Bye. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. BraveMaker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Thanks for listening to the BraveMaker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend.